0: Sales Tuners, episode 108, David Lefevre, CEO at the Mako Group. When people
1: start to make that million dollars on a W-2, it
0: changes how others look
1: at them. Or if you start to run a business or whatever it may be and people start to see success, for some reason they start to push away.
0: This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown the only weekly show where we talk about the attitude, action, and ability that gets sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from
1: $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years.
0: It's time. It's time. It's Sales Tuners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Ronald Reagan, who said the greatest leader is not necessarily the one who does the greatest things. He is the one who gets the people to do the greatest things. Joining me today on the show is David LeFever, founder and CEO of The Mako Group, a company that specializes in cybersecurity audits and assessments. David focuses his efforts on reducing risk and exposure for healthcare, banking, and publicly traded companies. When he's not growing his company, he's trying to conquer work-life balance by cooking breakfast for his kids and watching them get on the bus each morning, or trying to overcome his fear of heights. Today, we'll talk about proving the concept when you don't have any testimonials or case studies, staying with something long enough to let tenure help you, and why verbal yeses are absolute garbage. All right. Make sure you stick around until the end where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com slash 108. But now let's get to the conversation where David talks about the ultimate driver behind why he does what he does.
1: You know, first it's, it's always family and, and kind of, you know, stepping back to when I decided to start my own company, Uh, I was looking for freedom and I'd say personal freedom, you know, people most commonly tie that to financial freedom and, that can come with time. But uh, Jim, I think, you know, uh, just in my discussions with you, money can, can come and go very quickly. And uh, I try to keep in front of me what's static, what's not going to go away. So family's kind of the ultimate driver. I think work-wise, uh, it motivates me to to prove the naysayers wrong, to see, you know, smiling, happy employees and, you know, continue to build on the, the reputation that we've built successfully so far.
0: There's so much in there that I want to get to, you know, proving the naysayers wrong. This notion that personal freedom does not necessarily equate to financial freedom. Completely right on that. So we've got a lot that we can talk about today. I want to stay personal just for a second. I know that you've been to more than 100 live concerts. You've told me some of them were credible, others, well, not so uh, incredible. Give me an idea of what fell into each of those extremes.
1: Uh, Okay, incredible i say the two most incredible I've seen. I saw James Brown live, uh, which was just a- out of this world. Something that I, uh, uh, I was looking forward to, but did not expect. And I know probably at least 10 people that were at the same show that I was at. I convinced my parents to go see a show that I would not take my kids to at the Indiana state fairgrounds. And the opener for the opener of that show was uh rage against the machine and they were nothing. So uh, that's part of my era, but uh, it was kind of one of those things where you get to see a band before they are, you know, something large. So that was great. Uh, the Not So, the first show I ever went to was with my sister. It was New Kids on the Block and Millie Vanilli. <laughs> and Millie Vanilli yeah. weren't actually singing. So go go figure.
0: That's so much fun. So I I got a comment on both sides of these. So the first one, James Brown, obviously that is my given name, James Brown. Right. And so yeah, so yeah, I've I've been teased about that my entire life. But specifically when I was in the Marine Corps, the girl that I was dating at the time, she wrote me a letter every single day. Now that's great because I needed that connection to home. I wanted that, but it took about two weeks into boot camp, and and Marine Corps boot camp is thirteen weeks long. Two weeks into boot camp, the drill instructors finally realized my name is James Brown. And as soon as they did, I now had to sing every single time I got mail. It was, yeah, I, I don't know if it was incredible or not, but it was, uh, it was fun. David, you know, in this show, we talk about the attitude, action, and ability that's led to your success. So I want to talk about all kinds of things, but tell me about your sales process today. What is the Mako Group and why does a typical customer buy from you?
1: We provide professional services to companies who are trying to protect their data, uh, which is basically everyone. So each each layer of that has their own challenge. You could be, you could be selling gummy bears, and you want to protect credit card numbers for whoever's buying those from you. Or you could, you know, you could be Apple, and you're trying to protect patents and things. You know, the newest iPad, whatever it may be. So we help those companies uh, protect that data through assurance, uh, through measuring or quantifying risk, and you know, a variety of other methods.
0: You haven't always been uh, the person you are today. In fact, you haven't always been a salesperson. So take me way back and help me get to, to where we are today. How did you get into sales? Well, when I left
1: my last job and I, I learned a ton there, i had had uh, two jobs basically since I had left college and I you know had a relatively long tenure at each one. Uh, and I decided I wanted to try something on my own. So I left and it was... Uh, August 13th, Friday the 13th was my last day. So just very recently here uh, was when I kind of departed. And I knew that if I wanted to succeed and I wanted to make sure that the people that were counting on me, uh, which is primarily my family, but you know, we had an employee or two that I fulfilled my obligations. So for me, it was, well, I have to get out there and earn my keep, so to speak, or, or produce revenue. So I got on LinkedIn and I had six connections and they were all from my previous company.
0: That can't be correct. You had six connections.
1: Six connections. Well, I was an operations guy. So I I was in charge of like <laughs> insurance and risk and things like that. So uh, I knew some people at my previous company. Uh, that company was most certainly at the time not going to not going to hire our firm, although they recently did. Um, so uh, I had been trained uh, similar to you, Jim, uh, with a platform that has been proven successful. And I kind of laid those principles out and I said, all right, who do I know? Who do I know from church? Who do I know from? Uh, it doesn't, who have I had a hot dog with at a baseball game? It doesn't matter. Anyone I could think of. Who do my parents know? Uh, and and you have to ask. And I started to ask. And you know, people. I feel like people resonate with an entrepreneur, especially a young entrepreneur. Most people gave me the time of day. Uh, and it was a relatively new thing eight or nine years ago to to buy a service like this. Mind you, this was in Northeast Indiana, so there were no there were no competing firms up there doing it. So when we would approach smaller, large entities, I was like, Oh yeah, you know, maybe we'll toss a little work your way or something like that. So um, that was,
0: that's kind of how it started. That's, that's awesome. I love the entrepreneurial stories because everyone has that same kind of beginning is like, look, I have to sell something to someone for me to be able to eat. And I'll, I'll go talk to anybody that will listen. Now, as, you, as you've progressed, I mean, like, there's so many things that we can talk about. You, you became an Inc. 5000 company. You've hit record numbers in sales. You've done all that. But what were some of the early challenges, those stumbling blocks when you were uh, getting, getting going?
1: Early challenges, um, we started from scratch. So we had no references. And that's, that's, that's a big deal. If you go, to, you go to a reputable company, and you say, hey, we can help you. And they say, yeah, we believe you. Who else have you helped? And you can't name a single person. You have to, you have to figure out a way to answer that question. Uh, and you have to practice it you have to you have to be courageous so if you're not in sales and you suddenly jump in head first it takes a lot to ask someone to spend money with you and you may not think that after 5 or 10 or however many years in sales to say you know hey we can help you and you already spend money on this anyway so why not with us that's not a simple statement if you've never been in sales before so i think those those elements having that courage to really get in front of someone and and With a lot of confidence, say, "Look, I know that we can help you." And I, you know, whether there's an incumbent or you're on your own, I I think if you show signs of weakness or that you that you aren't confident in your ability or in your company's ability, they spot it immediately.
0: Well, how did you do some of that, David? You talked about selling without references. You know, starting from scratch without those case days. How were you uh, able to do that?
1: Oh, we did free work. So we, Uh we we had to build. We had to build. We still do free work if we're trying to launch a service or. You know, we're trying to spin up uh, something new to the market. We'll do a pilot with a company and say, look, uh, a lot of times it's not free because we're dealing with larger fortune companies now. But nonetheless, you know, we'll come in and say, look, we're piloting this and we're good at it. Uh, but we don't necessarily have anyone that, we, that can attest to our work. So let us come in and, um, and show you what we can do. And maybe you can give us some feedback on what you would have liked to have seen.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and even to that point of, you know, you do free work, as you said, it's not actually free. Even, you know, you, you've got some of these paid pilots, but when you think about the concept of this pilot, there is real cost to the company that is actually investing in you as well, because they got to take time away from whatever it is they're doing to make sure this works. They've got to take resources, whether they be, you know, internal employees or systems or they. So there's a lot of actual investment that they have, even though they're not maybe shelling over dollars. So I love that concept of proving it out you know, with the pilot, whether it be paid or not uh, to, to, to prove your worth or, or to get that initial case study.
1: Yeah. And our buyers really put their name on the line. I do. That's something that uh, we became aware of maybe three or four years ago that this isn't just bringing us in to check a box or reduce the risk or whatever our task is. The person that's signing off on us has the, has the opportunity to, to buy from a much, much larger firm.
0: So I want to kind of dive into this now. I mean, you know, you've, you've built this into a great company. Um, it's, it's crazy that some people look at the success you've had and think that you've always had it. You know, you, you told me about some of the early stumbling blocks, but how have you gone from zero to being an Inc 5,000 company multiple times?
1: It's partially that we're definitely in the right market and I'm not downplaying uh, salesmanship or delivery or anything else, but you know. Let's be honest. We're in cyber risk or cybersecurity. If you just say that word right now, people's ears perk up. So that's great for us. Um, additionally, our, our delivery has just been incredible. So that that carries us. When we, uh, it's taken a long time, but you know, our customers are talking to other customers now, saying, "Look, you you have options here, whether it's local or not." And this company is—they're hitting home runs for us. Uh, so our reputation precedes us in the best way possible. And we have a te- we, you know, we have a very strong tendency to, to kind of ride that sled, uh, not in a lazy way. I just mean that we use it to, to our advantage very heavily.
0: So from that cybersecurity standpoint, you know, as the company has grown, you're now selling into the C-suite of, you know, Fortune 100 companies. But the people you're trying to sell to, uh, David, they don't want to be found, right? Their extensions aren't in the phone tree, if they even have a phone at all. Uh, Most of them change the format of their email address so that we can't just guess it. How are you breaking through and just opening up those uh, initial conversations?
1: Yeah, you know, there's been a couple of things. One, I want that, to—that's been a bit of a detriment when you get into that market. If you say Fortune 100 or even Fortune 500, many of these buyers don't know each other, and that's a big difference between like a mid-tier company that's, let's say, you know, 500 million in revenue and they're networking with their peers and they know each other. If you're talking to uh, a very large company, you may have a buyer in Austin, Texas, and then the next company next to them in the Fortune 100 is in Oregon, so they don't know each other. Um, however, with the reputation of the companies that we're dealing with, if we can get to the buyer and we can do kind of a quick name drop, but what we can say, look, we help X company with X initiative. There's immediate credibility there. Uh, So when we've had a couple of these large companies take a chance on us and we've, and we've, um, you know, helped them reduce that risk or do what we do. We parlay that very strongly uh, in a professional way to say, look, we help, we'll just use, uh, um, I'll use a non-customer. We help Microsoft with this. If you use that word, Microsoft, or you use the word Facebook, or Apple, or some tech giant like that, uh, and we do have a few customers in that space, people listen. So that's been very, very helpful. Um, you know, to start though, I have to say um, there's a lot of power in hunting and getting, almost getting as many no's as you can, to the point where you get that one yes, because you have people just have to take a chance on you. So if you want to break it, and the Fortune 500, Fortune 100 is not for everyone. Um, You know, they, they do have a need for our service, but, you know, for every X number of no's, you're going to get a yes. And if you're not putting in the effort to get that, then sales probably just isn't for you, at least on the
0: hunting side. I know that's one of the conversations you've had and you and I have had in the past is hunting versus farming. It, it's, it's weird for me that as sales is making this shift to a lot of inside sales roles, the, the hunting mentality seems to almost be going away. How are you dealing with that with, with your people and, and maybe even yourself? Like, how are you kind of overcoming that?
1: You know, I, I did want to ask a question to you because there's this middle ground for me sales wise where, you know, you can hire a hunter and that's someone that's willing to, to go out there and they'll They'll do whatever they have to do to get a lead and to bring in a qualified prospect. And then you've got farmers who, you know, once you've got a contract ink, they're in there and they're massaging clients and whatever. There's this middle ground. And I did an, a, a round of interviews, uh, maybe eighteen months ago, and I got to the end, uh, and two candidates asked me the exact same question. They both said, "And this is a, you know, my mistake. Thankfully, I did not hire." They said, "How will I be handed leads?" And I said, I said well, "What do you mean?" He's like, "Well, my current company." you know, they were a B2C or a business to consumer platform, they would show up in the morning and there were 25 leads sitting on the desk. These 25 people need uh, a firewall. These 25 people need an annuity, whatever they were selling. Um, that was our question is, you know, you, you must have a platform in place to hand me leads and I'll go out there and I'll close. Uh, so what do you, what do you call that?
0: Well, I mean, that, that to me, that's an inside sales role where you are just basically, uh, going through and getting leads from marketing And going out and closing them.
1: Yeah. So not necessarily a farmer, not a hunter, more just direct inside sales.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think to me that's the the, the I, I totally get the the farmer hunter uh, mentality. That seems to me like the old school labels of these. Today, it's more inside and outside sales. Inside is someone sitting at a desk getting inbound calls, getting inbound leads, taking calls from people who have to go set appointments for them, and then the outside sales is people who have to actually go out and, to your point, hunt and kill whatever they can get.
1: Sure. So I see it a little bit differently, and I say this respectfully, but for us. Uh, a hunter is very clear, someone that generates qualified leads uh, on their own. And a farmer would be, you know, let's say you have a a giant like Microsoft, you have that account there inside those walls, uh, speaking to new prospective buyers within the walls and gathering more. Once you've already
0: landed the account. Once
1: we've already landed the account. We don't necessarily have a mechanism in place for an inside sales role. Uh, And that's a big challenge in B2B. So
0: no, I, I totally get that. So you know I deal mostly in uh, tech, which I mean, you're you're right on the periphery, your your tech services, but from a tech aspect, it seems like it's inside outside, and then client success is what you're talking about being inside, at least from the the world that I'm kind of living in on a daily basis. So that's interesting so. What are some of those tactics that that uh, you and your reps are using to, like I said, get in the door of these large companies? I know you're you're name dropping current customers, but that's assuming you can actually get them to pick up the phone or get an initial conversation with them. So how are you actually just starting the sales cycle with them?
1: As we've built a larger network, and I'm not going to say what size it is now, but a larger network of buyers, uh, they move every X years. So I think it has something to do with how long we've been in business. Uh, And and I mean that because it's been within the last six months where a buyer moved from company to A to company B and company that buyer moved from company B to company C. And we now have, instead of one company, three to four companies calling us going, Hey, we saw your work here. So we need you to come here and help us. And oh, by the way, I have a friend here. So that you can't just create that. Um, You one, have to have a buyer in position long enough to see your work. And then two, they have to make a move.
0: I'm just—I'm really intrigued by this because I've been having conversations recently about this notion of tenure. And w- a- as I study the the landscape of sales, I'm seeing reps jump around every really year and a half to two and a half, maybe three years. Right? They're jumping around to new jobs, and a lot of them are chasing what you talked about earlier. Is like, how many leads are you going to hand me? Right? Like, I've talked to Mark Robear, who is the uh, uh, VP of Sales at HubSpot. And literally, he could tell people in their interview process, like, you're not going to have to cold call. Like, we're go- we produce so many leads for you. You just come in and, and go through the leads, right? And people are starting to chase that. They want that. They don't want to have to do the hunting work that comes into it. But here's where this tenure notion comes in. A lot of the reps that are like closing, you know, having million-dollar-plus quotas are the guys who are sticking around. For multiple years and seeing similar to what you're talking about with your customers, they're seeing the customers they sold to at one company leave and go to another company and then call them back. And then if they can even go to a third company and start to call, this is when you're starting to build a really big pipeline. But we, it, today's reps are, are losing that opportunity because they don't stick around at a company long enough to see it through to fruition.
1: Yeah, you know, I agree 100%. But sales has peaks and valleys. Even the best people go through times of struggle where people aren't answering the phone or, you know, your close ratio is changing a little bit and you have to be able to ride that out.
0: It's interesting. Um, I I've had some people on the show that disagree with me with this notion of tenure. Um, they do, uh, dance around not dance around. They, they jump around and they, they, they talk about this concept of just changing the logo on their polo shirt. Right. Uh, but they still do call the same buyers and they're like, Hey, yep new logo, but here's the difference between this one. And they're able to still get them on the phone. Now, I don't know that I agree with it, but you know, some of them are having success with it. I guess so long as they are delivering on what they originally sold, it makes it at least uh, applicable to get the next conversation.
1: Well, I think there's power in moving. If you've been somewhere for five plus years and you've built that network and maybe you've for whatever reason, culture reasons or uh, product or whatever it may be that you make a move. And then you definitely can resell to the same people. But if you do it twice uh, or three times, you're, you lose credibility with your buyers. So again, there's power in numbers and power in years with that, where sometimes you just have to ride those valleys out and you have to make sure that whoever you're reporting to is prepared to ride
0: that out as well. Let's go back to that notion of, of pipeline, David you've told me in the past that you've actually hidden uh, your pipeline from your delivery team because, uh, you know, like a lot of people, we hear verbal yeses and we hear, you know, procurement will be in touch. And a lot of times, you know, from your perspective as a founder and CEO, you kind of hire maybe sometimes ahead of getting the ink. Talk to me about that and the challenges that you've seen specifically uh, at the Mako Group.
1: Sure. And this is, uh, uh, I think we both know this is beyond what we do with our professional services around tech. But, um, you know, early mistakes around procurement and verbals can come back to bite you. They can be extremely costly as an entrepreneur or a business owner perspective, but you know, they can also in the worst way possible, inflate your pipeline to something that's not really worth. So as you figure out what the average is within your industry, or if you figure out what the average is within your company, you probably need to rely more heavily on that than you are on verbals. So I can give you three scenarios. One very early on where, we were verbally awarded a contract. They said, all we have to do is check references. The references they checked actually called us and said, oh yeah, you know we, we pumped you up. Uh, and then we kind of got backhanded by the CFO of this company. So when I say that, we were never awarded the work. We've had people award us work and ask for a start date, and then we never hear from them again, never see the contract. So until there's ink on paper, it doesn't exist. I mean, uh, you you have to count it and you have to be ready, let's say staffing wise to be ready to deliver or, or product wise to be ready to deliver. But, you know, sales, <laughs> I'm sorry, but yes, yes is uh, they're really nice to hear, but I, I need to see a contract that says that we're going to do something together.
0: What are you doing with your team to uh, prevent that from happening? Is there any kind of like actionable things that you've been able to to do to to get away from this verbal yes, uh, you're know, kind of pulling us back?
1: I think for us, we most commonly would ask our uh, our buyers, you know, do you have an idea of when you'd like to start no matter what it is? And if they can't commit to when they want to start or start date or whatever it may be, then there's probably a little bit of, uh, you know, I don't know whether it's animosity or whatever it is, but there's something there uh, that's preventing them from going forward. Uh, So you kind of have to make the rubber meet the road, so to speak.
0: Sure. David, I've never sold, uh, cybersecurity risk management, anything like that, anything close to that, but I have several friends now, uh, in this space, uh, Help me understand my, my assumption is, or, or my perspective, uh, which is probably completely wrong, is that buyers don't actually want to talk about the risks that they have or the unmitigated challenge they have because it could expose them, just just talking about it to a salesperson. So how are you uncovering that real pain that they have or, or finding the real opportunity with with your prospects?
1: I think that's two or threefold. So we see pain from several areas. We see pain coming from Uh, with more mature companies, whether they're public or private, from the board of directors. So that pain would be we need assurance that we're not going to have X, whether it's a breach or whatever it may be, or or that we're protecting our customers' information because they're ultimately responsible. They're signing off on things, right? So when I say that, if they sign off that things are in place and they are functioning properly or operating properly and they have a breach, then the ultimate finger gets pointed back at that board. Uh, from a CIO or a CISO perspective, the pain is in protecting their job and protecting the data that they hold. I mean, data that they hold is kind of a no-brainer, but every company is having, they're having incidents all day long, minor incidents, okay? Uh, it's, it's minor bits of data leakage. They're trying to prevent the big stuff because when you have a big one, if you haven't presented yourself properly up and down that channel within your company, you're going to lose your job.
0: But I can't imagine they would just readily divulge that to you, right? Like, so how do you get them to kind of like you know uh, uh, truly bear it? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't even know how to ask that question, right? But like,
1: no, it's okay. I mean, some of them never will. Okay. I mean, you can you can ask, and you know, we we get sometimes, and, and we'll very quickly leave a room. We'll ask uh, a CIO or a CISO of a large company like, "How are you managing X?" And they'll tell us they're perfect. And, yeah, they've if got to they remember. Yeah, if they never budge from that, then there's probably no play for us there because, you know, maybe they are really great. I'm not saying that they're not, but again, you, you just that's like saying, well, "Well, I'm healthy." What do you mean? Well, I'm healthy because I feel healthy. Would you go to the doctor? I don't need to go to the doctor. I'm healthy. So that that's kind of how we relate it, and that's okay. Uh, to, to each their own. From a company perspective, if they feel good about that, then maybe they really do have it together.
0: Interesting. I just I, I find that fascinating because, like I said, I mean. You know, I, I've sold a lot of marketing. I've sold a lot of software. Uh, well, let me backtrack. I've sold a lot to marketers, whether it be software, whether it be services. Now I sell to mostly uh, entrepreneurs and VPs of sales or, or, or CEOs of small startups. And it's, they're very, uh, willing to talk about the challenges that they're facing. But I just, with that notion of security, I just, it feels like they'd be completely shut off. I also, when I think about, you know, disk profile, I'm assuming that you're dealing with a lot of C's in the disk profile who are going to be very guarded or want to, you know, talk about a lot of data. I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm intrigued by that.
1: Jim, that's changed actually. So six, seven years ago, they were very guarded. You know, cyber was like a dirty word. People didn't want to talk about it. And now, just because of the visibility or breach proliferation or, or whatever you want to call it, people have to talk about it. You know what I mean? Like you, you can't, you just can't ignore it. Or if you ignore it, you're ultimately committing career suicide because you're going to lose your job. So I, I've seen a shift in that. And I think for the, for the people that sell tech specifically in cyber, they probably see that as well. I think the other misconception that we see, there was a time within the last five years that people thought that they could buy a device and that would just take care of everything. Well, if I have this device, you know, modern firewall, blah, 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 then I'm protected and everything, blah, blah. So our buyers are becoming more educated, thankfully, uh, and I want them to be more educated. You know, I hope they hire us to help them, but even if they don't, I'd rather have them protecting your data, Jim, and your family's data or whatever it is, because it's uh, something that we kind of need to hold close to us, in my opinion.
0: David, I, I kind of want to switch real quick to I, I guess more of a, a personal uh, side with you being you know the CEO when I talk with with founders um, you know uh, of successful companies you know successful entrepreneurs that have been so focused on their business, that tends to come with the sacrifice of, of personal friendships and I just want to ask like has that been the case with you as well and if so like w- what are you doing to overcome that
1: uh, you know it does that's a that's a very smart statement uh, from someone that's talked to a lot of entrepreneurs, I presume. So it's, I wouldn't call that tied directly to sales, but yes, it's, it's lonely, I would say. Uh, And I mean that um, in a good way. I mean, you, you have a bubble and there are certain people that want to be within that bubble and others have a tendency to push away from it. And that may sound uh, bizarre, but if you're an entrepreneur or a business owner or whatever it may be, you kind of find that out where Sometimes people you, you you thought were close to you maybe push away when you start to do something like this. Uh, and I don't know if that's jealousy or that is, uh, I, you know, it could be anything. But I, I know at least a half dozen entrepreneurs that have talked to me about this subject alone that is just like, look, uh, my friends are now the husbands of my spouse or something like that. Uh, And I'm, I'm in the same situation. And these are great, great people that I have become friends with. Um, But uh, it's, it's most certainly not who my childhood friends were, or college friends or things like that.
0: Well, I asked that question because it's definitely a serious topic around uh, you know the, the, the entrepreneurship circles, right? But in addition, you mentioned earlier that if you're going to be good in sales, you are an entrepreneur, you're creating your own business. Maybe it's inside of another company, but you're creating your own book of business. And you know, I, I have reps that I talk to and friends that they're W2ing over a million dollars a year, right? So these are successful uh, salespeople and they're saying the same thing, right? To, to be that good you, you have to give up something. And it tends to be those close relationships that we have. So it's not just entrepreneurs, but it's just successful people.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. And again, a jealousy may not have been the right word. So I hope that doesn't come across the wrong way to your listeners. But it does create a divide. And and I think that uh, it, it just it creates a barrier. And I don't I don't know what it is. I, I know a, a gentleman that's uh, uh, that lives near me that is very clearly uh, affluent, and he doesn't work. And people don't want to be around him, but they don't, they don't know him or his character or whatever it may be. You don't know if, what if his dad died and he inherited a bunch of money, whatever it may be. When people start to make that million dollars on a W2, it changes how others look at them. Or if you start to run a business or whatever it may be, and people start to see success for some reason, they start to push away. So, you know, I have my circle and, you know, thankfully for me, that's my, you know, parents and my wife and my business partner and, and people like that that I celebrate successes with, and they're the people that I would call in time of need. And I have um, some great people that I'm surrounded by, but but yeah, it comes with sacrifice.
0: I, you know, I think jealousy is a good word, and I and I even mean that. It's like you know, I've seen inside of organizations, uh, you know, some of the, the salespeople that are doing well for themselves, making good amounts of money. Other people inside the company, but in other organizations, I'm sorry, other departments. They look at that and they're jealous of the amount of money that that person's making. And it's funny, I had a VP of sales uh, in in, in a a prior uh, job that used to say, hey, you're more than welcome to come carry a bag, right? But as soon as you don't perform, you're fired. So you take the risk to make the money. And so it's kind of interesting. But this whole notion, though, of wishing... Or wanting to have what someone else has, right? I think about the most elite athletes. You think about Kobe Bryant, you think about LeBron James, guys like that. Everybody wants the talents and the gifts and the, and the, uh, that they have, but no one is willing to put in the work and, and have those sacrifices that it took for guys like that to get to where they are. David, I know I could talk to you all day, but I got to take a quick break so that we could say thank you to my sponsors. When we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So you don't go away and sales tuners, you don't go away there. We'll be right back. Costello is pioneering the way companies build and execute sales playbooks. The platform helps sales reps prepare for calls, ask timely questions, tell relevant stories, and sync insights back to their CRM all while showing managers and reps the gaps in every single deal so they can work them together to move them forward. With Costello, sales leaders can identify what's working on the front line and replicate success across their entire team. Learn more and see a demo at andcostello.com. That's A-N-D-C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O.com. We're back and it's time for the money round. David, are you ready for the money round?
1: (sighs) I'm ready.
0: <laughs> Here we go. What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional?
1: It's probably being an entrepreneur and sales at the same time. It's it's in my blood. Uh, it's in It comes out in my delivery. It comes out in my pitch. Uh, it's, it's something that I just don't have a choice. And I think that that makes, it makes my sales delivery exceptional and, and the delivery of what our company can do.
0: If you were to start over today in sales, what would you tell yourself to spend the next 30 days doing?
1: But I would make a list of everyone I know uh, and I'd get in front of everyone, maybe even uh, possibly in a group platform. You have to go through people that you know. You just do. That's where you have to start. That's where the trust
0: is. Two-part question for you here. Which phrase describes you best and why I love to win or I hate to lose?
1: I have an endorphin rush for both, but the rush of a win uh, heavily exceeds uh, the way I feel when I lose uh, because I ride it a lot longer. Like when I lose, I can shake it off, uh, lasts, you know, short period of time. When I win, we celebrate, we go out, we parlay it, we do different things with it. So it's a longer feeling for me and a better feeling, obviously.
0: What's a book that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? The four hour work week. Sales Tuners if you'd like to check out David's suggestion of the 4-hour work week for free, head over to salestuners.com/book and there you can sign up for a free 30-day trial of Audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that salestuners.com/book for the 4-hour work week, and I will tell you that is one of the books that drove what I'm currently doing with this year-long trip around the world. So, it's a great one for you to pick up. David, what is currently at the top of your bucket list?
1: My wife tells me I'm somewhat boring because I don't have a long uh, list of bucket list items, so to speak. I kind of live in the now. Uh, But if I had to pick one, I'd probably say that I would relocate my family to to a bucket list location, so to speak, and, and at least try it for X period of time. We'll just leave it at that.
0: What's the biggest piece of advice you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today?
1: A no is such a good thing. It's no's are such a good thing to get. You can learn lessons from them. Uh, you you can craft your approach from how people tell you no and how quickly they tell you no. And with each one, uh, a yes is just around the corner.
0: But you cannot get yeses if you don't go through your no's first. <laughs> I love hearing founding stories and the all-in approach they have to take. It's crazy to imagine starting a company with only six LinkedIn connections and building it into the success David has. Speaking of LinkedIn, he said that was the best way to stay in touch with him, and he responds to any outreach that is legitimate. Let's get to my top takeaways. Number one, prove the concept. If you're rolling out a new product or service you know can solve a problem, but no one can vouch for it, consider giving it away to seed the market think about the last time you were in the food court at a mall. Several of the restaurants had a person standing outside their area handing out free samples. After trying a small nibble of something good, you proceeded to pay full price for the product. The same is true with pilots and limited engagements of your service. Getting companies to put their name on the line early allows them to be references for you as you expand. Number two, let tenure help you. Going against the trend of sales reps bouncing from company to company every year and a half for what seems like a 10% raise in base salary, I want to encourage you to find a good company and stay put. I have several friends and clients who have W-2 earnings over $1 million per year. Look, I'm not exaggerating. These individuals have been with their respective companies for five to 10 years and have seen some of their buyers move to two or even three different companies each time immediately bringing in their salesperson to the new role. Think about that. This is much better than your regular inbound lead. This is someone who has actually bought from you and has seen success with your product. Additionally, the notion of survivorship bias starts to creep in. The company you're with knows you know more about the product than anyone else, so they trust you to work on their largest opportunities. Number three, verbal yeses are garbage. Look, I love Roos Chris Steaks. But not once have I ever been able to pay for one with a commission check from a verbal yes. I see and hear so many reps getting happy ears about some prospect who's given them a verbal yes and then been absolutely shocked when two months go by and either the deal is still not closed or they find out they went to another solution. Until you have dry ink on a piece of paper, you've got nothing. Start thinking about every possible scenario that could cause your opportunity not to close and then work diligently to line up the resources needed to overcome each and every one. That's it. Those are my takeaways, but I'd love to hear yours. Please tweet at me at SalesTuners or shoot me an email, Jim at SalesTuners.com. I reply to every message that I get. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, I'm Jim Brown. Let's make it rain. Thank you for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to
1: subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts.
0: And they stay there.